John chapter 19, verses, pick it up in verse 14 through 37. And it was the preparation of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he bare his cross, excuse me, and he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him, on each side one and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priest of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to every soldier a part, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let, it, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment amongst themselves, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus, therefore, saw his mother and the disciples standing by, whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Behold thy, excuse me, woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel of vinegar, and they filled the sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and broke the legs of the first and of the other, which was crucified with them. And when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they broke not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came thereout blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again another scripture saith, They shall look upon him whom they pierced. And thus is the reading of God's word, and all his children said, Amen. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us your word. We pray thee, Lord, that you would open it unto us, that we might behold Christ the King. In his name we pray, Amen. 
Well, this morning, I once again, I want to focus on Jesus as the King. Um, I haven't been watching the news much lately, and I find when I do, I'm really a bit happier about the way things are going in the world. You know, when you just walk outside and see the sunshine and just live in the real world and stay off the virtual world or stay away from the mouth of the beast, um, I'm just a happier person. Um, When you watch the news and see all of the evil that's going on in the world, you have a tendency to believe that maybe God is not in control. And I want us to, again, appreciate that fact that Jesus is very much ruling and reigning in control. He always has been, and he always will be. And so when we look in John chapter 18 and 19 here, uh, seeing Jesus being led to the cross, seeing people do the things that they're doing, they say the things that they say, they're, they're gambling at the foot of the cross as though things are out of control and things are just kind of happening that uh, either God didn't appreciate or understand or has no hand in. And that's all false. It's all false. He knows exactly what the people are going to do, and they are fulfilling Scripture while they are doing those very things. Our deacon read for us this morning portions of Acts chapter 3, and it said at least three times in there that these things were spoken of by the prophets. So at least a thousand years, one of them, and he even talks about being from the foundation of the world. And indeed, the things that were written about Jesus were written about from the foundation of the world. In Genesis chapter 1, even the first couple of verses, the gospel is right in there in the symbolic language, uh, which the Lord opens to us later in the, in the Bible. He talks about how um, the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Well, the waters represent people. So the Spirit of God is walking upon the face of the earth across the over peoples. And verse 3, it says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And so as Christ goes out in the world, he's dividing people on the left side of him and on the right side of him. He's dividing the light from the dark. Um, And we read in, um, I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, the Apostle Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that this verse, verse 3, is the gospel. Let there be light, and there was light. For he says that God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus, our God, through the Holy Ghost, through the pen of Paul, is teaching us that the gospel is right here. And so the Lord separates light from dark. He separates waters from waters, waters from below, from waters above. That's all the gospel. He puts a firmament to divide the waters. That's verse 7. And God made the firmament and divided the waters, which were under the firmament, from waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. What are the waters below the firmament? Non-believers. What are waters above the firmament? Believers. Look at this pulpit. There's the firmament. That's the cross. God uses the cross to divide believers from non-believers. The space represents uh, the waters, uh, the face of the deep. Um, So from the very beginning, God has laid everything out here. He's told us how things are going to go. Nothing we should construe for a moment should be out of control here. So again, look at verse 11 here. When Jesus is brought before Pilate, and Pilate says, Then Pilate saith unto him in John 19.10, Speakest thou not unto me, knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee, and I have power to release thee? As I shared with us, that is not true. He's bound by the Roman law how he should uh, conduct himself. Verse 11, Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. 
Now, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, which I've read a number of times, but again, think of verse 11 here and put that together with verse 16. It speaks of Christ in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him, by Christ, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. They were all created by him and for him. Pilate was created by Christ. His dominion, his power, his control, his authority, his throne was created by Christ. So when Jesus says, thou couldst have no power at all against me, except I gave it thee from above. The power for Pilate to crucify Christ comes from Christ. So let us ever keep that in mind here, that it was his, the power that was granted him was created by God and for God. And of course, Jesus is God. He is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's Revelation 13, 8. Everything is going exactly as it is supposed to go. I've shared with us a number of times, uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, that God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That required man to fall, and that required that Christ go to the cross. Again, going back to Genesis, because it all starts in Genesis, we're going to read about the how um, in typology, the Lord is speaking about how the church is going to be created. In Genesis chapter 2, it speaks about the creation, I'm not, that's the wrong word, how he built Eve. God uses different words in terms of what he has in Genesis chapter 2 here in 1, uh, even though you don't know that in English, but if you look in the Hebrew, he uses different words. Um, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 19, it speaks about how out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field. Well, the woman is not a beast, and she wasn't making, she was not taken from the ground. Um, but nevertheless, it says here about how God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found and help meet for him. And now here comes the gospel. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. She is not a beast of the field. She is made from Adam. The Hebrew word there is builded. It's not made like it's used in other places in the scripture. And Adam said, this now is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and the wife, and were not ashamed. There's no sin. They're not ashamed. They do not need to be clothed. So the gospel is right there about Adam um, was placed he, uh, in a deep sleep and out of his side, uh, that which was required to make his wife, his bride, the woman, was taken from his side. And so we see that with respect to the death of Christ. In John chapter 19, verse 34, Christ is dead. He's in a deep sleep, just as Adam was. In verse 34, it says, But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood 
and water. So just as a, as a rib was taken out of the side of Adam, uh, blood and water comes forth out of the side of Christ. And it is those are the ingredients by which the his bride is made. The blood represents uh, um, that which is required to cleanse us from our sins. The scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of, of sins. Revelation talks about how we're washed in the blood of the Lamb. We're washed in Christ's blood. The water represents a regeneration and renewal of the Holy Ghost. The Lord speaks about that in particular in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, about the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Ghost. Now, that what took place there, in this fellow it says here, and that he saw it bear record, and his record is true, we read about that in 1 John chapter 5, verse 8. This is God's witness and testimony about what took place. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 8, it says, And there are three that bear witness in earth. The Spirit, which is the Holy Ghost, and the water, which is, represents the gospel in this context here, and the blood, which is the cross. And these three agree in one. The Holy Ghost, the gospel, and the blood of Christ all represent um, the gospel in general, and they agree with, what, with respect to what took place. Now, it's interesting that these things are reversed in uh, the Gospel of John versus the uh, first epistle of John. What came out first from the Lord was blood, then water. And here in 1 John, it is the Holy Ghost, and then it's the water. The gospel goes forth, applying the veracity and the truth of what was accomplished by the blood of, of Christ. So, again, all the way back in Genesis, just as in Acts chapter 3, it talks about what the prophets spake of from the foundation of the world, the things that would happen to Christ. And so that just as Adam was put to sleep, so too was Christ. Uh, did Christ die? And from his side comes forth um, his bride. Now, again, helping us to appreciate that God's superintending and, and watching over everything, and everything is going exactly as it should be. We read about in Philippians chapter 2 um, that Christ did these things of himself. In Philippians chapter 2, pick it up in verse 6, helping us to appreciate that Jesus is God. It says, Philippians 2, 6, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Jesus is God. It's not robbery for him to be equal with God. Verse 7, but made himself. Jesus made himself of no reputation. And he took upon himself the form of a servant. Jesus willfully did this and was made in the likeness of men. Verse 8, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. This is what Christ did. He humbled himself. He subordinated himself always to the will of the Father, and he subordinated himself to the authorities that he had created. All principalities and powers are created by him. He willfully subordinated himself to those. So he humbled himself, and he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so Christ willfully, uh, ever about accomplishing his Father's work, ever a subject to his Father's will, was obedient and he went to the cross, and I've pointed out a number of times here where it talks about how he was led to the cross. He wasn't dragged to the cross. He wasn't prodded. He wasn't goaded. He was led to the cross. And so he willfully submitted himself, and he did that which was required of himself to redeem for the Father a people. Now, in John chapter 10, the Lord lays it out very clearly. He says in John chapter 10, verse 17, Therefore doth my, mother, my father love me, because 
I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Jesus himself laid down his life, and Jesus himself is going to take it up again. I lay down my life that I may take it again. And verse 18, just to help us clarify it, no man taketh it from me. No man took his life from him, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. In other words, this is what my Father has told me to do, and I'm obedient, I'm going to do it, I'm going to willfully submit to the will of my Father. I lay it down of my power, and I take it up again of my part. No man, no man on this earth, not Pilate, not Caiaphas, not Anas, not the soldiers that crucify him, nobody had the power to take his life from him. And we're going to see that as we continue here. Now, you've probably seen Hollywood's rendition of Christ going to the cross. And the movies I've seen show him struggling to carry that cross as though he's not going to make it yet. You think to, I think to myself, well, the other thieves, other thieves, the two thieves had no trouble carrying their cross. Why would Jesus have trouble carrying his cross? Now, I know he was scourged and his visage was marred more than any other, but he is God incarnate and he's laying down his life willfully. He is not weak. He is able to bear that cross of his own. But we see that in Luke chapter 23, verse 26, that a certain man, Simon of Cyrene, carried his cross for him. But you have to watch the language here. And this, again, the gospel is taught in what we see here. In Matthew 27, 32, it helps us to appreciate what took place. Simon of Cyrene was compelled to carry the cross. Jesus didn't need any help, but he was compelled to. To carry the cross. So in verse 26 of Luke 23, it says, And they led him away. Again, he's willfully following. They laid hold upon one Simon, Isyrinian, coming out of the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. So there's Jesus, and then following him is Simon of Cyrene, who is, was compelled by the Romans to carry his cross. He didn't do it voluntarily. He didn't say, it looks to me like he needs help. I will carry his cross for him. But he was compelled to carry the cross. Now, again, this is fulfillment of Scripture. The Lord is teaching us something here with respect to what just took place there. Now, remember a couple weeks ago, I mentioned to you that a crown of thorns was plated and placed on Christ's head in mockery. It's a crown, certainly, so he was crowned king. But I shared with us that that's something that takes place in Leviticus chapter 16 respecting the Day of Atonement. Now, something else takes place with, on the Day of Atonement, but two lambs, excuse me, two goats are placed uh, before the, um, the, tab, the, the door of the tabernacle, and lot, a lot is cast on the two goats. Um, the lot to whom falls uh, to the goat is what's called the scapegoat, and that is the goat upon which the priest will confess all the sins of the people, and that is the goat that is led out into the wilderness. And so in Leviticus chapter 16, you pick it up in verse 21, it says, And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel. So please appreciate that all of our sins were placed upon the head of Christ and all their transgression and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, 
and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. So in fulfilling um, the uh, Day of Atonement here in typology and shadow, the anti-type Christ has symbolically placed upon him all of the sins and iniquities of his people. And he's led by the hand of a fit man, which is Simon of Cyrene, out into the wilderness. Verse 22, And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let go of the goat in the wilderness. So Christ is led without the gates of the city. It says that in uh, Hebrews chapter 13 about how he was led with outside the city gate and he suffered outside of the city gate. Um, so what you see take place on the Day of Atonement takes place when Jesus is led to the cross. So things, again, things are not out of control. Simon of Serene was chosen by God to represent the fit man that led the scapegoat out to the wilderness upon which were confessed the sins of all of Israel, and that would be the Israel of God. So, so it is true with Christ. Now, we see here also the gospel and God's sovereignty in ruling and reigning over people and the doctrine of election in terms of who is going to save and who he's not going to save. But this idea of taking up a cross and following Christ comes from Matthew chapter 16, um, verse 25. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 25, the Lord is speaking here. Matthew 26, 25, he says, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. The context of this is verse 24, which immediately precedes it. If any man will come after me, Simon of Cyrene is following after Jesus. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, whose cross did he take up? He took up his, Jesus's cross, and he is following Jesus. So we see the wonderful uh, an example of the gospel here about how here he is. He's from Cyrene. He's come out for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as all the um, males are required to do. And he is chosen by the Romans to, he's compelled to carry the cross of Christ. And we see there the gospel that if any man would lose his life and uh, save it, then he should uh, follow Christ and pick up Christ's cross. And so in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, we read, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I think Simon of Cyrene could say that the Lord loved him and that the Lord laid down his life for him. And so he was crucified with Christ, as indeed are all of these saints. To be crucified with Christ means to die um, in the flesh. You stop living your life according to the lusts of this world, the lust of your flesh. And it is a slow, painful process, as any Christian um, would attest to if they've been a Christian of any length of time, that dying to yourself is a difficult thing. It's in the uh, death by crucifixion, crucifixion was a very slow and painful process. Now, interestingly enough, Cyrene means supremacy of the bridle, supremacy of the bridle. Now, man is rebellious by nature, and the Lord would teach us that here and at the gospel because we find surrounding Christ are five people total. Four of them are women, 
and three of them are named Mary. There's Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's her sister-in-law, Mary. And then there's um, Mary Magdalene. Three of them are named Mary. And what do you suppose the name Mary means? It means their rebellion, their rebellion. So Christ is surrounded by rebellious people. And indeed, that is why he's on the cross, among other reasons, is because of man's rebellion. So three women around him are named rebellion. But this idea that uh, Cyrene means supremacy of the bridal takes us back to Psalm chapter um, 2, where it speaks about why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. In other words, man is saying, it's using imagery about here about having the bands and the cords of the Lord ruling and reigning on our life and directing us in the way that we should go. And man would say, let us break their bands asunder. Let us cut those cords as though the Lord were a, a rider on us, the horse, and has a bridle in our mouth. And man would spit that bridle out and sever those cords. But with respect to Simon, it says supremacy of the bridle. Obviously, the Lord has his reins on Simon, and Simon will bear the cross of Christ and be crucified with Christ, you know, spiritually in the sense of faith, and that he follows Christ to the cross. So the gospel is, is preached here in that context. Again, God is ruling and reigning over everything that place takes place in every one of its details. And as I have said, Man is nevertheless responsible for his actions. So Jesus lays down his life. He says that he has the power to do that. Now, when people die via crucifixion, and there has never been an example of anybody who did not die via crucifixion. When they went and they were, when they were crucified, nobody survived it. It, it was, you, you died. One of the things that eventually got to them was they would suffocate because they are hanging by the arms, they can't catch their breath, they are standing on their feet, which are nailed to a cross, and that's a very painful thing. So they would lift themselves up as long as they had the energy to do so. When they did not have the energy to do so, then they would eventually suffocate. And yet, three times in uh, three of the synoptic gospels, it specifically says that Jesus spake with a loud voice. He was never short of breath during this process of crucifixion. It says that he spake with a loud voice. You get over to verse 31, and they want to accelerate the death. And so what do they do? They go and seek the pilot, the authority, that their legs might be broken. Again, this would put all of the weight on the feet. Um, they could no longer bear themselves up. Excuse me. They could no longer bear themselves up by their feet, and they would hang, and then that would accelerate the process of suffocation. And yet in verse 33, it says, but that when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they broke not his legs. Why was he dead already? Because he laid down his life. Pilate even marveled that Christ was dead already because he knew that he was a strong man. Why else would he marvel? So he was dead already, and that is because he laid down his life for his people. And again, the scripture tells us here that that's the fulfillment of prophecy because Jesus is the Passover lamb. And when you prepare the pastoral lamb, you are not to break a bone of it. And so, again, they tell us here, in case there's any question, verse 36, For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. He is the Passover lamb. There are many of the epistles that point to that and share that with us. But John the Baptist, in the very beginning of the Gospel of John, had pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God 
which taketh away the sin of the world. So John the Baptist had pointed out that he is going to be the Passover lamb. And so you see that scripture fulfilled as well. Also the fact that they pierced him, again, is scripture fulfilled, where it talks about how they should look on him whom they have pierced. Now again, keeping with the um, understanding that he laid down his life, in verse 30, it speaks about here, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. That's a declarative statement. He knows everything has been accomplished, not only according to Scripture, but that everything has been accomplished to redeem his people. Um, he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Now, his head just didn't flop to the side after his death like it would for any one of us, but it specifically says that he bowed his head. That was an action of volition, of his own, indicating that he was laying down his life. It says here that he gave up the ghost. In Luke 23, 46, it helps us appreciate this a little bit more. In Luke 23, 46, it says, And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, again, he's not suffocating, with a loud voice, and said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He is commending his spirit. He's taking ownership of it. He's commending it unto the Father. It says, he gave up the ghost. It wasn't taken from him. He gave it up. Now, you, you contrast this with Acts chapter, Acts chapter 7, 59, where it uh, speaks of the stoning of Stephen. And on that case, it says, and they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That's very different than Jesus um, commending his spirit to the hand of the Father. Jesus, every bit... Uh, in control of everything that took place, willfully laying down his life as the Lamb of God, accomplishing everything that was set before him, and then declaring it is finished, a declarative statement. Knowing that he accomplished everything, he lays down his life. So he is always in control every step of the way with everything we see here as we move to the cross. And while he's on the cross, he is very much in control, and he is ruling and reigning as king. Now, in verse 19 of John chapter 19, it said, And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. He has just put the gospel, superscription, right over Jesus' head on the cross, and he has declared him to be king because Jesus has told him that he was king, and he's seeding the point here. Now, it's interesting that Pilate um, vacillated a number of times about whether or not he would crucify uh, Jesus. He did not want to, but nevertheless, he did it anyway because he fears man more than God. And yet here, he makes a declarative statement that Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, even though the Jews push back on it, he refuses to, be, um, to change it. He says, what I have written, I have written. God here, again, superintending all of the affairs of men and putting right on the, um, the cross of Jesus that he is the king of the Jews. Now, I'll go into that perhaps next week about what Jews he's talking about here, but we should understand that to be that those whose circumcision is of the heart um, and not of the, uh, of the flesh. Now, this point that Jesus is king is seated by Pilate. So I want us to think about the scene that's before us here. We have Jesus on the cross and we have one thief on one side of him and one thief on another side. 
In Matthew chapter 25, the Lord speaks about himself in a parabolic way as the king. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, he says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is written in three languages. It's written in Hebrew, the language of the religious people. It's written in Greek, uh, the language of science um, and philosophy. And it's written in Latin, the language of the Romans, the uh, language of law. Everybody that's there has that written in a language that they can understand and appreciate. Verse 32, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so there we have Christ reigning from the cross. We have a thief on one side and a thief on another side. And what does he say to one of the thieves? And Luke helps us to appreciate what is written there. He says, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Sheep on the right, the goat on the left. The one is going to go to glory with the Lord, the other one shall not. So there he is reigning over things and dividing the sheep from the goats. And just like I said from Genesis chapter 1, dividing the light from the darkness, dividing the waters below, uh, above from the waters below. Ever ruling and reigning and ministering and superintending everything that is taking place. He prays. That's the first thing he does when he's on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Lord willing, we'll talk about that uh, next week. He is praying for the people. He is saving people, which he has done for the thief, and he provides for his mother, um, knowing that uh, after his death and his uh, resurrection and ascension, his mother will need care, and so he commends her to the hands of the beloved um, Apostle John. Now, as I mentioned before, you have at his feet, beneath the cross, you have the soldiers that are literally gambling. They're casting lots for, uh, they're dividing up his um, raiment, and they are casting lots for his coat. That's in verse 23 and 24 of John 19. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. Sounds like that is something that is unusual because they clearly saw that it had value to them. Unlike our clothing, our sleeves are made from a different... um, um, part, and those are sewn together, and then those are sewn on the body of our shirt. So our our clothes are all patchwork, but his coat was um, woven from the top to the bottom. It was without seam. Verse 24, they say it therefore among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture did they cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. So here you have the soldiers in, a, in a, what seems like a very thoughtless and callous way. You know, undoubtedly, they've crucified a number of people. And so here's just another to them at that time, an individual. And they are, have been stripped naked in uh, evincing shame and humility. And they're placed on the, cro- on the cross. And one of the perks, I suppose, is that they get the clothing 
that the prisoners and the, um, those condemned were wearing. And so though it seems, uh, although it's unrelated, it is very much related to what was written in the scriptures. Jesus, uh, the Lord had said ahead of time what would happen. In Psalm chapter 22, it says very clearly in verse 18, they parted my garments among them and cast lots for my, upon my vesture. And that's exactly what they did in the fulfillment of Scripture. Now, that is not what they're doing random in any real sense of the word, any real sense of the word, because in Proverbs 16.33, it says that though the lot be cast in the lap, the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. So that vesture, that last raiment, was to go to one of those men in particular. And the Lord knew exactly who it was going to go to because he determines how the lot will be cast. And so we should appreciate all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when the Lord clothed Adam and Eve because of their sin, he's doing the same thing here. Remember when the prodigal son returned um, from divesting himself of all of his father's inheritance. He had ruined his life. He comes back home, and what does this father do? He embraces him and places upon his son the best robe. And in like manner, the Lord does to his people, and so symbolically he's doing that here. In Isaiah 61.10, it talks about how we are clothed with the garments of righteous, garment of salvation and the robe of righteousness. And so the Lord uses this symbology throughout the Scripture um, you'll recall in Luke chapter 8, it speaks of a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. And what does she do? She touches the garment of the Lord, and the Lord says, someone has touched me. She touches the garment, and the Lord says, somebody has touched me, for I perceive that virtue has flown out of me. So the garment that the Lord uh, is wearing represents his uh, virtue, his righteousness, and that went to a particular um, soldier, because the Lord determined how that lot would be cast. And so, again, we have to appreciate, I want us to appreciate that God is ever sovereign and that he is in control of all things. From beginning to end, he has superintended everything that has happened here. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In uh, Acts chapter 3 that the, um, our deacon had read for us, he talked about what ye did in ignorance, what they did in ignorance. But ignorance is not innocence. These people are still guilty. But provision had been made in the law for people doing things in uh, ignorance. In Leviticus chapter 5, verses 15 through 18, he speaks about that. If a soul commit a trespass and sin through ignorance, if you commit a trespass and sin through ignorance in the holy things of the Lord, then he shall bring for his trespass unto the Lord a ram without blemish. And it goes on and talks about there about how they will be forgiven because they have, in fact, sinned. Now, that's for the people in general, but in Leviticus 4.13, he says that for the, lead, for the whole nation, and if the whole nation, if the whole congregation of Israel sinned through ignorance, and the thing be hid from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done somewhat against the commandments of the Lord concerning those things which should not be done, and are guilty, forgiveness will be granted. And so there is the Lord on the cross. He's making allusion to the Levitical law because everything the Lord did fulfilled all of the, uh, the law and the prophets. So there he is on the cross. Everything he says is, has significance. Everything that takes place around him has significance. Though men are responsible for their evil deeds and their wicked hands, they have crucified him. Nevertheless, God is in control. And we have to take this, what we read in here, 
and import that into our own lives when we look at the foolishness in this world that we should appreciate that God is very much superintending things, that all these people are, are very much responsible for their wicked deeds. But we should rest in the Lord that everything is advancing his kingdom in the way that he wants it to go. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So everything that's taking place here and everything that's taking place out there, out the window, is working for our good. In Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. And so I ask you, are you trusting that the Lord is working everything out for your good? I struggle with that. I know it's true, but it's hard to own that when you are stumbling and struggling and you're watching foolishness, things, foolishness take place. He says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto your own understanding. That part I get because I surely do not understand what's going on in the world. And because I don't understand it, I have trouble trusting. But he says to trust, he says, don't lean on your own understanding because you are not going to understand it. His ways are above our ways, as high as the heaven is above the earth. Verse 6, in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. And so we should do that. We should acknowledge his hand in everything. Who would have thought that the soldiers gambling for his raiment, God would have his hand in that? We should acknowledge him. He, his, his hand is in that. How that went was determined by God. That he was poked with a, um, pierced with a spear, that was all God. His legs were not broken. That just seems like random events, you know, if you're outside looking in instead of being on the inside looking out. So any event, the admonition to us today is let us ever trust in the Lord. Lean not on our own understanding, but us appreciate that everything he's doing is indeed working together for our good. Amen.